0: This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. In this week's stories, we take a look at the commentary around the Airbus $4 billion national anti-corruption settlement. COSO warns of soloed compliance, very appropriate in view of the Airbus anti-corruption settlement. The Odebrecht monitorship is extended for nine months. How did the bankruptcy play into that? What about small changes in the Transparency International Corruption Perception Index? Do they matter? Is the DOJ guidance a sword, a shield, or perhaps both? How to grow your compliance company as your company scales up? Are you worried about CCO liability? Matt Kelly explains why you should consider it. We have a few words about Bernie Evers, one of the driving forces behind Sarbanes-Oxley. What about speaker programs and big pharma? I discuss the first week of the month of HR and compliance on 31 Days to a More Effective Compliance Program and announce a great upcoming webinar I'm doing with Conversant on the Astros sign-stealing scandal. I know you'll enjoy this episode. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, the Voice of Compliance, back again with Jay Rose and Mr. Monitors for This Week in FCPA, episode 191, for the week ending February 7. 2020, the all hail Airbus edition. Jay, reports of Airbus's $4 billion fine and penalty for corruption allegation were true and correct.
1: What say you? Well, I I don't know if it's just what say me. We have a whole panel of experts that we're linking to in the show notes. In addition to a five-part series that you've done, we've also get some looks uh, from Dick Casson, from Mike Volkov, and from the other side of the pond, Jonathan Armstrong and his uh, colleagues from Corbury Compliance uh, also comment. Uh, what Richard Casson was thinking about was uh, going into the time machine and ten years ago, uh, the first top ten list in 2010 on the FCPA blog, Simmons was on top with its 800 with its paltry $800 million resolution. And Titan Corporation was in 10th place with $28.5 million. Um, this year now, 10 years later, Harry's top 10 post after the Airbus settlement included the stunner. Four FCPA settlements have now reached a billion dollars or more, and it takes at least $579 million to even make the current top 10. So doing some quick back-of-the-envelope math, if the total value of the current top 10 FCPA cases is $10.3 billion, it means that the average top 10 FCPA case, now, FCPA case is now worth $1.03 billion. So the uh, the numbers are staggering. And um, what Jonathan did is on his um, review, he took a look at the um, the matter in the three different jurisdictions and talked about some of the Bribery schemes, which is uh, things that I'm sure you've written about this week, Tom, and talked about. Uh, a couple takeaways from Jonathan's perspective is that DPAs are here to stay in the uh, United Kingdom. And uh, rumors of the death of the UK Bribery Act in 2010 were premature, as now the act does seem to have teeth. And the case shows that SFO's intention. Is to play their role in investigating and prosecuting corrupt conduct. So those are a couple different views from um, each side of the pond. Tom, what did you focus on this week
0: in your writings? So Jay, I'm I'm trying to just sort of move through it. Uh, the problem I've found is typically I can do this in five episodes or five blog posts, but this was so big, so humongous, so all-encompassing, so many bribery schemes, so many uh, enforcement agencies investigating it and resolutions that I, I was failed to uh, conclude it in five blog posts so I'm going to have to go into next week. But, um, Jay, the thing that uh, I really – the question I had starting with my first blog post, which was really for myself, which was was – how does this case, how can I make this case relate <clears throat> to the regular corporate compliance practitioner? Um, a um, company much smaller than Airbus. And it turns out <clears throat> there's actually a lot of lessons uh, to be garnered from from this for the compliance practitioner. So that's what I've tried to focus on. Obviously, the bribery schemes were... Um, uh, utilize, largely utilizing third parties. Compliance was completely siloed. They had no access to contracts of third parties, of payments to third parties. Uh, there was a complete paper program in place. Um, and and this was the question I was really going to pose to you, Jay, um, because you and your colleagues at Affiliated Monitors focus on culture so much. You had uh, numerous situations um in the, uh, settlement documents referenced where there were outright lies. Um, the business unit lied to, uh, compliance function. Uh, the one that I found the most egregious was the executive director of export control compliance lied to the general counsel. Uh, when the general counsel raised questions about the, uh, <clears throat> uh ITAR submissions and the, um, uh, executive director said yes. They they personally checked all of the information provided by the business unit. They didn't check any of it. Their only job was to make sure the paperwork was correct. Um, so that really speaks, obviously, to a to a lack of of any kind of substantive compliance program. But the when you lie to your colleagues at work, that's just not something I'm used to seeing. Uh, I've I've yelled at people. I've been yelled at. I've had knockdown, drag down fights. Um, names have been called. <laughs> I've been called names. I've called people names, but I've never been in a situation where they, uh, your business colleagues, lie to you—the ones inside your company, not your competitors. And I, I found that, from a cultural persp- perspective, incredibly troubling. Particularly since it was a compliance practitioner who lied to the general counsel. Um, so a lot. It turns out there are lots of lessons. Mike focused on, uh, and he did a great job on the ITAR. I thought uh, that was uh, really important to think about as well. Um, so a wide range of, uh, of uh, blog posts for you to check out. Uh, this case is still in the news. It's still on the front page of the news. Um, the fallout actually has just begun. Um, Indonesia, Malaysia, uh, Argentina, um, Colombia, Ghana have all, all now opened investigations into their state-owned enterprise airlines. To find out those who receive bribe payments, um, Sri Lanka has uh, dismissed its director of aviation. Um, so there are going to be continued lots of fallouts and plus, of course, any individuals who are prosecuted on this matter.
1: Yeah, it's going to be the gift that's going to uh, it's gonna keep on giving at least through um, the first half of this year and maybe through the whole year as uh, these uh, individual prosecutions wind on. Um, moving into some other news. Uh, COSO warns of siloed compliance. What does our colleague Kristen Broughton at the Wall Street Journal Risk and Compliance Journal have to say?
0: I thought this was particularly propitious time for this uh, guidance to be issued by COSO. And they basically uh, talked about the uh, uh, creating and protecting value and why the compliance function and enterprise uh, relates into this and enterprise risk. And the number one problem is siloing. Uh, just as I talked about uh, regarding um, Airbus. So um, historically, um, uh, or rather, COSO helps uh, companies develop frameworks to uh, improve internal controls and manage key risks. And the guidance provides a bigger focus on risk management and strategic decisions and how to establish an enterprise risk program. So uh, it's very useful. COSO is a great resource uh, to everyone out there. Um, the COSO uh, Internal Controls Framework uh, should be the basis of your compliance controls framework. And this guidance is going to help us uh, uh, move forward. So uh, kudos to COSO for uh, getting this out to us, Jay. Uh, Jay, it turns out Odit Rush was in the news. What what happened there?
1: Yeah, and we have a double dip into uh, Wall Street Journal Risk and Compliance Journal. This comes from, uh, how do you say it, Tom? Is it menqui's Sun? Is that close? Mengi. Mengi. Thank you, Maggie. So, um, the Brazilian construction company agreed to retain an independent compliance monitor back in 2016, rather, as part of its plea agreement with the De- Department of Justice. Odebrecht now has extended that monitor till November 16th for almost an additional nine months to fulfill obligations under the extended plea agreement. Um, in a letter to the Brazilian company's general counsel last month, U.S. prosecutors said the company had failed to fulfill obligations under its plea agreement. Prosecutors said the company failed to adopt recommendations made by the monitor and failed to implement a compliance and ethics program designed to prevent and detect violations of certain laws. The company now has until November 16th, 2020, to fulfill these obligations uh, and here's the uh, the meat of it all. Uh, the company said in a statement that the temporary suspension and extension of the monitorship was, quote, due to financial issues with the monitors, unquote, as a result of the company's orga- reorganization. The company said pending financial issues with the monitors are in an advanced process of being resolved and that it continues to implement recommendations made to the company, Um uh, Quote, at no time did Odebrecht fail in its commitment to comply with the recommendations arising from its leniency agreement. Besides the financial pending issues, Odebrecht has been demonstrating that the company has already changed its internal processes and attitudes, always in search of high standards of ethics, integrity, and transparency. So I guess, uh, attaining those ethical standards, uh, you know, always can be uh, delayed by uh, going through a Chapter 15 process. So uh, I don't think both those uh, s- both those statements are correct. So we'll have to see what comes out in the uh, succeeding, uh, rather, in the nine months ahead of us. Call me a skeptic, Tom.
0: Yes, well, uh, and speaking of skeptics, um, let me now turn to uh, Matthew Stevenson over at the Global Anti-Corruption blog. And I'll just read the title of this piece we're going to reference Small year-to-year changes in the TICPI scores are meaningless. Small year-to-year changes in the TICPI score are meaningless. Small year-to-year changes in the TICPI score are meaningless. Um, I think you might get the sense of what is frustrating uh, Matthew Stevenson. Um, he goes on to repeat that phrase, I think, 10 times in his about 300-word article. So about 30% of those phrases. Uh, so if it's not clear, he believes that small year-to-year changes in the TICPI scores are meaning less, and his frustration is that when the uh, press release from T, uh, TI comes out about the CPI, they inevitably play up the changes, um, connecting to some larger narrative that TI hopes to convey. And uh, he's written about this numerous times. He says that uh, concludes basically by saying... And I guess they've made the decision uh, to go this way. So um, <clears throat> I agree with him that uh, they, they are relatively meaningless. But what I would say is that they can uh, point towards a trend if you see that for several years. So um, year to year, probably meaningless, small, particularly small scores. But as they trend one direction or another, it may be become more meaningful, Jay.
1: This week, I continued on uh, with a series that I've got going at uh, Corporate Compliance Insights. And I'm continuing to review uh, DOJ announcements over the past couple of years. And in the series, I explore what companies can do both internally and externally to incorporate the Bencikowski memo and other DOJ guidance. Um, Here's a few things to touch upon. The first thing to recognize is that while laying out the criteria for monitor selection by the DOJ, the memo also lays out a roadmap on how to avoid a moment monitor. Uh, And the factors that you can use is first, it includes whether the underlying misconduct involved something as systematic as a manipulation of corporate books and records and exploitation. The second factor to consider is whether the misconduct was pervasive across the organization. The third factor, did the company make significant investments and improvements to its corporate compliance program? And a fourth factor considers whether these improvements to the compliance program had been tested to demonstrate that they prevent or detect similar misconduct in the future. There is clear evidence of what a company can do to try to avoid a monitor if it finds itself in an investigation. Uh, I also looked at a speech that um, Principal Deputy Assistant Attorney General John Cronin made to the Practicing Law Institute in December of 2018. And he said, when we at the department talk about compliance, we are referring to effective compliance, specifically direct prosecutors, um, the principles specifically direct prosecutors to consider whether a corporation's principles specifically direct prosecutors to consider whether a corporation's compliance program is merely a paper program or whether it's designed, implemented, reviewed, and revised as appropriate to be in an effective manner. The DOJ will take a hard look and wants companies to demonstrate that they are holding perpetrators accountable. So going back to the sword and the shield, compliance professionals should read the memo carefully to fully understand the principles that are laid out, and this will help you not only to use it as a shield to protect your organization from getting into an FCPA hot water, but also if you do get into trouble, you can use the act as a sword to cut off Possible requirement of a monitor. Uh, next week, I'm going to conclude, conclude this five-part series by taking a deep dive into the benefits of using a third-party proactive monitor. So that's that one. And Tom, we're going to go back into CCI. Uh, tell us how to grow one's compliance program as your company scales up.
0: So Jay, this was an article by a fellow named Gio Gallo. And Gio is the co-CEO um, with his big brother of a company called Compliance Line. I got introduced to Gio a couple of weeks ago when I interviewed him for Innovation and Compliance podcast. And uh, although his hotline company generally works in the healthcare space, obviously had a lot of application to um, uh, other uh, industries and other um, uh, disciplines, or rather, uh, outside of the healthcare space. And he really emphasized... <clears throat> the need for the human element around hotlines, that uh, automation is really not everything. And here, uh, he goes a little bit different direction, but um, I thought it was uh, a great article because this is a question I am asked a lot, Jay, is when is the right time to put in robust controls? When is the best time to put in uh, your compliance program if you're moving from a startup kind of through A, B, C, and D funding? When do you make that investment and Uh, Geo says basically when it comes to risk management, it's imperative that small business owners and startups uh, need to act now, even if it's just planting a compliance seed, that they should start now and build later. And the difference between ROI, the difference in ROI between doing nothing um, versus planting a seed is tremendous. And he gives some specific um, uh, strategies to follow. They are not uh, rocket science, nevertheless, uh, and they're going to be uh, uh, certainly recognizable to many of our listeners, but in the, in the context of a small business or a startup, it's written policies and procedures, having someone designated as a compliance officer and then having a committee so that initiatives are properly managed, training, education, and communication, effective lines of communication so that uh, somebody can raise their hand and speak up, Monitoring and audit, auditing, disciplinary guidelines if someone uh, uh, violates them, uh, responding to uh, uh, offenses that uh, uh, you hear or see about, uh, hear about or see rather. All of those things I've just uh, ticked off there, Jay, are things that you can do at uh, relatively low cost, many of them at no cost, and are things that you should be doing as part of your overall business process anyway. So, uh, a a good way to think through this. Uh, And uh, so kudos to Gio Gallo. Uh, I guess we're going to be seeing more from his commentary in the compliance community. Uh, And I look forward to seeing what he comes up with.
1: Good stuff. So it wouldn't be this week in FCPA without us not uh, referencing our colleague in Boston, the the coolest guy in compliance, Matt Kelly. And uh, this week, Mac, Matt is worried about CCO liability. Uh, the New York City Bar Association released a report on Tuesday warning that compliance officer liability continues to be a worrisome part of the regulatory environment and called for more guidance about when a compliance officer conduct can leave him or her and the regulators' crosshairs. Um, the report focused on compliance officers mostly working in the financial services sector, and the, the issues do not tend to affect uh, compliance officers who are in the non-financial fields. Um, Matt had four bullet points on how regulators could ease liability fares. The first is draft formal guidance to explain the circumstances When a compliance officer may be subject to personal liability, offer greater detail in enforcement actions, risk alerts, speeches, or other informal guidance about why regulators did or didn't bring actions. Create new channels of communication between compliance officers and regulators and establish a standing advisory committee to meet with regulators and talk about compliance issues. Compliance officer liability is a tricky thing. For compliance officers at hedge funds, registered investment advisors, banks, and other financial services, things are more complicated. They can theoretically face liability under the Investment Companies Act or the Bank Secrecies Act for failing to implement an effective compliance program. And continued pressure from regulators for those firms to, quote, do better, unquote, at compliance is translating into fears. Um Matt has a couple of his um, hilarious uh, memes that you got to look when you link in. And um, Matt says, the real question here is how much liability should compliance officers face when they lack the ability to build the compliance program they want and that regulators expect? Uh, Matt's one beef about the report is it doesn't really provide enough examples of compliance officers who got a raw deal from the regulator. It does have numerous examples that demonstrate the potential for personal liability gone wild. But in many of those cases, the act, the facts don't paint an accurate picture of injustice. So uh, interesting article as always, we link to it in the show notes and Tom, next up uh, Jim Zeroli and NPR
0: marked the passing of Bernie Ebers. I wanted to, uh, Talk about Bernie Ebers and what he means to the compliance professional. Because if it hadn't been for Bernie Evers, we might not have had Sarbanes-Oxley. And if we didn't have Sarbanes-Oxley, we wouldn't have certification of internal controls. And if we didn't have certification of internal controls, we might not have had the <clears throat> explosion of FCPA cases in the middle part of the last decade. So a few words about Bernie Evers, the telecom cowboy who uh, ran one of the most uh, fraudulent companies ever, called WorldCom. He rolled up a bunch of uh, telecom companies, basically bled all the money out uh, to himself and his buddies, and then uh, let the thing rot. Um, the further connection to compliance is the following. Our good friend and colleague, Stephen Martin, was a uh, associate general counsel at WorldCom. And Stephen Martin did the internal investigation of fraud uh, by the top sales team, which uh, led to the company being unwound or uh, uh, imploding, I should say. And so, this started uh, Stephen really on um, directly on his uh, compliance career, uh, and he worked at, unfortunately, a couple of other companies, Adelphia and um, one other one that also had some pretty fraudulent behavior, behavior going on, but uh, he certainly got experience from that and then, you know, obviously went off to do some other great things in compliance. But, you um, uh, so, uh, WorldCom, Enron was number one bankruptcy of all time until WorldCom. And although we might have had Sarbanes Oxley based on Enron, uh, <clears throat> when it was uh, still being debated, WorldCom broke and that broke the dam. And there was literally nobody in Congress who could oppose Sarbanes Oxley after the two biggest um, bankruptcies in U.S. history were directly uh because of accounting fraud. And um, so uh, Bernie Ebers ran it. Uh, he went to prison, was given a 25-year prison term. He was released on compassionate leave last December because of uh, health issues. And, you know, 30 days later, he he died. The world changed with Enron and WorldCom, and Bernie Ebers was a big part of that. So I just thought we ought to signify Bernie today. So one thing that
1: uh, hasn't changed as of late is we still have issues with companies and big pharma and them paying honorariums or inducements to have uh, doctors and prescribers come to speaker programs. And we've got an article that comes to us from some attorneys at Wilmer Hale, Stephen Jonas, Erica Aiken, and Athena Katsampas. Uh In December 2019, Israeli pharmaceutical company Teva settled with the Department of Justice for $54 million to resolve false claim acts and allegations, among other things. Teva induced physicians to write prescriptions for drugs that treat multiple sclerosis and Parkinson's by paying them as, quote, speakers, unquote, or, or, quote, consultants, unquote. The Teva settlement was one of a wave of settlements in 2019 then evolved allegations of pharmaceutical companies improperly compensating physicians through sham speaker programs. Uh, speaker events pose a risk under the anti kickback st- uh, statute because intent to induce can be shown even without evidence of the words that we hear all the time now quid pro quo for prescriptions. Uh, the attorneys at Wilmer Hill make six suggested practices. For pharmaceutical companies uh, hosting speaker programs. Uh, number one, they should maintain presentations, recordings, and other distributed materials. This is first to avoid any allegations of presentations being shams. And second, to show that companies should update their content, ensure that each presentation is designed appropriately. Next, track and document attendees at each event. Establish and adhere to a procedure for nominating and selecting speakers. Four, select a venue that is appropriate. Companies should host programs in traditional venues such as hotel conference centers, libraries, or educational institutes, but uh, holding events in Las Vegas or Disney is most frowned upon. Number five, ensure speakers are compensated at firm market value. And number six, maintain and enforce a robust compliance program. Uh, within that robust compliance program, maintain a clear policy on gifts, maintain written protocols regarding investigation and remediation of instances of misconduct, distribute these policies to all employees, train employees regularly on the relevant policies, and consider retaining outside counsel to conduct a full review of and stress test compliance programs. So, um, so it's very slim article, but to the point. And if you are in the medical field, uh, we suggest you check to it in our notes. Uh, Tom, you have told us now that 31 days of compliance will be going to 365 days of compliance. So what are the issues that you're starting to consider in February?
0: So Jay, in the month of February, I'm going to look at the role of human resources and compliance. On Monday, I introduced that role. On Tuesday, I looked at the role of HR in creating an ethical culture. Wednesday, we considered HR the hiring process and compliance. On Thursday, I took a look at uh, something that I don't think most people think of as a compliance control, but that's the reference check. And then today, uh, on Friday, I talked about uh, incentivizing compliance and how HR can really help the compliance program work to incentivize compliance. I'm going to talk about HR for the month of February. So, um, uh, Jay, uh, it's not 365 days. It's only business days for the rest of the year. So I'm not doing it every day, but uh, you'll get 20 or a few, 22 per month. So it'll be a great series, and I'm looking forward to seeing what uh, uh, questions I have and uh, what people come up with for us.
1: I don't know, but to me it sounds like you're slacking. I mean, what do you got to do on the weekends? There's no pro football now. Both of our baseball teams don't have managers. They're cheaters. Uh, Why wouldn't you want to continue this on the weekend?
0: Well, that's a good point. Uh, Mrs. Compliance Evangelist uh, really suggested for my own health reasons. Uh, So,
1: you know, um, fortunately or unfortunately, I was at the world's happiest place, Disneyland, last Sunday. And... uh, Mrs. Monitor gave me some updates on the game as it went on, and I have not seen the game yet. But through your eyes, what were your, your thoughts and feelings on the quality of the game and uh,
0: what you saw? So, Jay, uh, I thought it was a great game. Um, uh, San Francisco was up uh, 10 points with uh, eight and a half minutes left. And uh, in six minutes, um, Kansas City scored 21 points. So uh, Kyle Shanahan now has the uh, most unique uh, epitaph of being the uh, either the offensive coordinator or the head coach for the team that gave up the greatest comeback ever. Um, there was a lot of the com- that? yeah. Imagine you that. Had that greatest comeback ever? Yeah, uh, Boston Patriots, or I suppose New England Patriots. That's a little too old school. Um, the um a lot of the commentary at said that the game was crummy until the end and i completely disagree uh, san francisco clearly took uh, kansas city out of their game they took patrick mahomes out of their game out of his game patrick mahomes made some very uncharacteristic bad throws he made uh, a terrible throw for an interception that as he said hit the linebacker between the 5 and the 4 on the numbers on his chest Uh, He threw a second interception that was so far behind the receiver, all the receiver could do was get one hand on the ball and bounced up into the uh, defensive back's arms. Um, But Patrick Mahomes himself said that was the San Francisco defense. They completely disrupted what I was doing. They completely disrupted what we were doing. So much as with last year's Super Bowl, which many poo-pooed as a a low-scoring, defenseless or offensive morass. Uh, I great I enjoy great defense, and I enjoy uh, watching great defensive players, and Nick Bosa was great. But uh, Patrick Mahomes came, he, he made they made the adjustments and uh, they had some great individual plays. They had some great team plays. They had some great scheme plays. Um, they went to a hurry up offense with about five minutes left. and San Francisco d- defense was completely out of condition. that's one thing I, I detest about the pros is they are never in condition to play four quarters. If you played football in high school, you know what I mean. Um, and I, I really thought it was a great game. When, when the game was on the line for the Niners, Jimmy G could not do it. Uh, he, uh, they went four and out. Uh, he threw a very bad interception. Um, he, he could not step up to the level of Mahomes. Patrick Mahomes was, was truly the MP, MVP. I thought it was a great game. Uh, I really enjoyed it. I'm glad Andy Reid got his Super Bowl win, and he's definitely going into uh, a Hall of Fame now. Well, I, I,
1: look, I look forward to seeing it this weekend.
0: And uh, so, Jay, there's one other thing I wanted to uh, talk about, though. Um, a late addition to the show notes. Um, this next Thursday, February 13th at 2 p.m. CST, um, 3 p.m. EST, um, and I'm not sure what it means for you PSTers, Uh, I'm going to have a webinar with Lane Brannan of uh, Conversant on the Astros Ethics, Compliance, and Sign Stealing. Um, Lane is a college baseball player, so it's going to be really interesting to get his perspective. And We're going to talk about uh, ethics and compliance and sign stealing. Um, uh, As just before we went to air to record this, Former Houston manager A.J. Hinch gave an interview on Major League Baseball. So we'll talk about some of Hinch's remarks and his failures and how he has taken complete ownership from what he did and, more importantly, what he did not do. And there's some great leadership lessons. So uh, I hope everybody will chime in. This is going to be the first webinar on the uh, Astro sign-stealing st- scandal, and uh, I've, I'm really uh, looking forward to this, Jay. So I hope you'll uh, tune in and uh, maybe even throw me a high, hard one.
1: Sounds great, Tom. So uh, I think that's uh, wonderful news to wrap up on. Uh, So I'm going to bring it on home for uh, Tom Fox, the compliance evangelist and the voice of compliance, and myself, Jay Rose, and Mr. Monitor. We'd like to thank you for joining us for this week in FCPA, episode 191 for the week ending February 7th, 2020, the all hail Airbus edition. We hope you have a great weekend and look forward to connecting with you next week on This Week in FCPA.
0: Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. If you have any questions, you can email Jay at jayrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. You can email me at tfox at I Hope you'll join Jay and I again next week where we take up some of the top compliance and ethics stories which caught our collective eyes. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Thanks so much for listening. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.